Kids Church. As we were singing uh, The Great I Am, I was reminded of the I Am statements of Jesus. As Jesus, Jesus made seven I Am statements. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the vine. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am living water. He said, I am the door. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And Jesus made the statement to the Jews, to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. And when Jesus made that statement, they sought to kill him. They picked up stones and they sought to kill him. The Hebrew phrase, I am, is, is a causatory verb. Uh, the, the Hebrew language has, has different classification or different, different styles of verbs. And the Hebrew verb, I am, is a causatory verb. It literally means, I cause what is to be. And so as Jesus stood before the Pharisees, he made the statement, he says, I cause what is to be. He gave himself the very same name and made the very same assertions of his character and his identity that God, the God of Abraham, had made to Moses in the burning bush whenever Moses asked the question, whom shall I say sent me? God tells Moses, tell them that the one who causes to be, tell them that I am has sent you. When God said what, when Moses said, what, what name shall I say? Then God said, tell them I am that I am. I cause what is to be. And Jesus made this very same statement. He said, I am. I cause what is to be. What a wonderful celebration this morning as we gather together to celebrate who Jesus is. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to look at Matthew chapter 23. We're going to finish Matthew chapter 23 and jump into Matthew chapter 24. And if you've been reading ahead, you're probably salivating. You're saying, oh man, we're going to talk about prophecy. He's going to tell us when Jesus is coming back. I'm going to go ahead and get my calendar. We'll go ahead and mark that day. And I don't want to disappoint you, but I'll not be marking calendars today. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, we're going to read verses 37 through Matthew chapter 24, verses 14. Matthew 23, verses 37 through 24, 14. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather her children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came up to the point to point out the temple buildings to him, he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, 
tell us when these things when these things be and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because of lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. Then the end shall come. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're good and you do good. We thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you're faithful to your word. Thankful that you are faithful to your, your people. We thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy. God, as we open up your word, Lord, may you speak to our hearts here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you know you're old? I know I am old. And, and many, of, many of you are sitting out there and thinking, oh, son, you don't have a clue. You think you're old. <laughs> But my, my children remind me on a regular basis how old I am. Uh, this week, we were going to a baseball game, and I had my son in the car with me and one of his friends that plays on the baseball team with me. And we were going to the, we were going to the ball field, and, and they're, they're talking about Snapchat and Instagram and all these, these apps on these iPhones. And, and, and I said something about, I'm going to get Snapchat on my phone and I'm going to snap you and, and uh, try, trying to use all these, these language to make, to make myself feel younger because I know I'm old. And, and I, I mentioned something uh, about you know, not, having, not having cell phones. So when I was in high school, I said, we didn't have cell phones. So, you know, unless, you were, unless you were really, really wealthy and then you, then you had like a bag phone in your car, and, and if you had a bag phone, then you, you had arrived, and, and I, was, I was talking about, and, and this, the, the, the kid that was in there, he was like, his mind was just blown that, that we didn't have cell phones, and then I said something, I said, I said you know, whenever, whenever I was in high school, for most of my high school years, I said, we, we didn't have the internet, and when I told him we didn't have the internet, I might as well have told him that, that, that me and Moses were brothers. Because I was, I was old, that, that I actually went to a school in a time where there was no internet. And I'm sitting in the car and I'm thinking, you know, most of the technologies that we have today, have, it, it's come about so fast. We were, after, after the flood, uh, actually before the flood, whenever we were renovating the sanctuary, whenever we moved the sound booth from over there in the corner to back in the back, we had, uh, we had a, a, 
double cassette player. We had a CD player. We had a DVD player. We had uh, uh, this receiver that did something at one point in time. I'm not sure what it did. And, and we, were, we were, you know, renovating the sanctuary. And so we were getting rid of all this stuff. And, and it just, it, it broke my heart to take, I mean, there was nothing wrong with this CD player other than the fact that it was the size of a tube television. Uh, there was nothing wrong with this double cassette player other than the fact that, that most people don't even, most children today and teenagers don't even know what a cassette is. And, and the, these, these devices were, were antiquated. They were outdated. Now we have a computer. And that's it. Any, any, anything we need, we can stream live from the internet, whether it's music, whether it's video. We, we don't need all of these other devices. You say, where are you going with this, preacher? Let's look at the text. There comes a point in time whenever that which is outdated becomes replaced. Whenever that which is old and useless becomes replaced with something that is useful and something that has purpose. Matthew chapter 37, or 23, verse 37, Jesus is just finished He's just finished this, this horrible condemnation of the Pharisees. He's just called them sons of the devil and told them that they're going to burn in hell for all of eternity. Very warm, fuzzy words of Jesus. And then he makes this statement in verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who sent her, those who are sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks. Jesus is grieved over the condition of Jerusalem. He is, he is literally moved to tears. And Luke, in Luke, it tells us in Luke chapter 19, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it tells us that Jesus, when he is, when, when he enters into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry, he tops the the, the hill, looking out over the city. And as he does so, he approaches Jerusalem. He weeps over the city. He is grieved over the spiritual condition of Israel. He says this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38. He said, your house is desolate. The word there in the Greek literally means a wilderness. Now, Jesus has just left the temple, and what did he do while he was in the temple? He worshiped, right? He made an offerings, Passover, he, he did all that, right? No, what did Jesus just do in the triumphal entry? As soon as he enters in Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes where? To the temple. And as he goes to the temple, he cleanses the temple. Remember, this is the, the scene where Jesus drives out the money changers, and he overturns the table, and he makes this statement in Matthew chapter 21. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, Jesus has just left the temple, the place where the presence of God is supposed to dwell, the place where Israel is supposed to find sanctuary, place where Israel is supposed to find solace, the place of, of, of the presence of God. And he has just left it and said, you have turned it from a house of prayer, which it was intended to be, into a den of thieves. And he has just condemned the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the, the, the religious elite, and he walks out of Jerusalem. And he's grieved over Israel. And he looks back and, and he says, my house, the house of God, the temple, once was a place of 
of solace, place of sanctuary, place of worship. It's desolate. It's empty. It is a wilderness. Contrast that to the original intent of the temple. Before there was a temple, there was what? Where are the Old Testament scholars? This is not a hard question. It starts with T and ends with tabernacle. So the be before there was a temple, there was a, a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was built where? In the wilderness. The tabernacle was built in the wilderness. Remember God, God showed Israel, He showed them the promised land and said, but because of your lack of faith, because you don't believe that I can give you this because you, you did not have faith, then you will wander in this wilderness for 40 years every day, a year for every day that the spies were in the, the promised land, you will wander in the wilderness. And so that was their punishment. But while they were in the wilderness, God commanded Moses, He said, build for yourself a tabernacle and he told him exactly how to build it how wide how tall he, he told him how, all the materials to use he gave them very specific instructions and he said i will dwell with you in that tabernacle my presence will go before you i will be with you the whole purpose of the tabernacle was the presence of god in the midst of the wilderness notice the irony in matthew chapter 21 23 now, the temple has become a wilderness, not the presence of God. Jesus enters into the temple, and, and Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is God in the flesh, and the presence of God walks into the temple, walks into the temple, and, and he drives out the money changers. He drives out the, 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 the he overturns the table. He drives out the Pharisees and, and, and all of the religious leaders, and he recognizes the irony that at one point in time, the temple was a sanctuary in the midst of the wilderness. Now, there's a wilderness in the midst of the presence of God. The purpose for the temple was to represent the presence of God. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 9 tells us this. Jesus had pointed out that the temple was no longer fulfilling God's intended purpose. What the Jews and what the Pharisees and what the religious leaders had done was they had misplaced their allegiance. They had worshipped the temple rather than the God of the temple. They had worshipped the law rather than the God of the law. They had worshipped Worship, they had worshipped the, the religion rather than the God of the religion. They had worshipped the gift rather than the giver. It's a good thing we never do this, right? It's a good thing we never misplace our worship. It's a good thing we never elevate our worship to the point of idolatry. I believe that for Christians, our biggest our biggest temptation to idolatry, our biggest opportunity for idolatry is not worshiping false gods. It's not worshiping Baal. It's not worshiping the Ashtaroth. It's not worshiping the gods of Hindus or, or Buddha or the New Age movement. But I believe our temptation, our greatest temptation, is to elevate good, godly things. 
to the point of worship. Many of us, many Christians who, who love the Lord and desire to serve Him, worship, worship. We worship music. We worship the, the, the emotion of, of being in the presence of God. And, and we elevate that and, and, and we, we, we place that on such a high on such a high pedestal that, that we think that, that we can't be in the presence of God unless there is an emotional stirring created by a certain, a certain style of music that we like or that we don't like. We worship worship. There's some of us who, who worship the Bible. And we know the Word, and we know the Word from cover to cover, and we can, we can quote passages of Scripture after passages of Scripture. We can quote entire chapters of the Bible, and, 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 and we will go to two or three Bible studies a week, and we worship the Bible. And the Bible becomes our God, rather than the God of the Bible. Many of us worship our religion, we worship our, our ability to keep the law. And we've done exactly what the Pharisees have done. We've done exactly what Jerusalem had done, that they had worshipped the temple. They had elevated the temple, they had elevated the law to their God. And Jesus walks into the temple and he sees this and he's grieved. He looks back over Jerusalem, he sees the temple and he's grieved and he says, he says, that place is, it, it's empty. It is a wilderness. It's desolate. I want us to listen to this. When the temple no longer fulfills God's purpose, it is only fit for destruction. When God ordains for His purpose, when what God ordains for His purpose becomes no longer purposeful. It becomes redundant. And it becomes a substitute for His purpose. The temple had, was no longer fulfilling what God had designed it to fulfill. With the coming of Christ, the temple was to be a residence for the presence of God. When Jesus came to the earth, now all of a sudden the presence of God no longer dwelled in a temple but was walking among the people. There was no longer a need for the temple because the purpose of the temple was to represent and to, to be the dwelling place for the presence of God. Now, with the incarnation of Christ, with the coming of God, John chapter 1, verse 14, and God, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the exact representation of the glory of God. When the incarnation of Jesus took place, Jesus replaced the temple because the temple's purpose was no longer being served. Does that make sense? There was no longer a need for the temple because Jesus was that temple. And when Jesus would die and would ascend and the Holy Spirit would come in John chapter, John chapter 14, whenever Jesus prays to God, he said, God, I pray that you would send your helper, you would send your paraclete to come and indwell your people. When that Holy Spirit falls in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when the Holy Spirit falls, the people of God become the dwelling place of the temple. They become the dwelling place of the presence of God. There's no longer a need for the temple. 
This grieved Jesus. It grieved Jesus that the people of God, that, that the Jews, that those who knew the word were unable to see that there was a, that there was a transition going on. That the temple, which once had been the, the residing place of the presence of God, was no longer needed because God was here in the flesh. Jesus takes his disciples away. And his disciples ask him. They say, teach us. What are you talking about? When is all this stuff going to come to play? Look at chapter 24. Now he's just been addressing all of the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, the multitude. Gets to chapter 24. And Jesus came out from the temple. And he was going away with his disciples. And his disciples came up to him and they pointed out to him the temple of the buildings. Now, whether the disciples were pointing out the grandeur of the buildings, whether they were pointing out the fact that just yesterday you cleansed the temple, you drove out all the money changers, and look, they've already set up shop again. So apparently what you intended to do was ineffective because they're already, uh, that they've already begun buying and selling. They've already begun exchanging money again. The, the, the racket that they had going on before is still going on. Whether that's what they were pointing out, we don't know. But they point out to Jesus the temple. And he's now made his way through the Kidron Valley and he's up on the Mount of Olives. And he looks back over Jerusalem. And his disciples asked him, when Verse 3, he was asking, his disciples asked him, they said, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now I want to point out that Jesus' disciples put together, they, they, they make a connection between the coming of Jesus and the end of the age. Now keep in mind that they yet had not yet fully grasped the fact that Jesus would die, that he would be resurrected, and that he would ascend into heaven, and that there would be a second coming of Christ. So what then are they talking about when he says, what will be the sign of your coming? Remember, the disciples are still expecting a political king. They're still, respecting, uh, or they're still expecting a Messiah to come and drive out the Romans and deliver them from Roman oppression. So what are they talking? They're aware of the oppression and they're aware of the political climate there in Jerusalem. They believe. It's my opinion that they believe that Jesus is going to go away for a time and allow the political unrest to settle. And that Jesus is going to come again into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government and take his position as king over Jerusalem. So if you look at the text, if you look at the text, if you look at verse 3, they are asking this question, when are you going to come and when is going to be the end of the age? Now, the end of the age may be the, the, the end of time. It may be the end of, of the Roman era, maybe the end of Roman conquest. We're not exactly sure what the disciples are referencing here. But Jesus takes this opportunity. Jesus takes this opportunity to point their minds and their hearts heavenward. This section, verse 24, verses 4 through really 31, is both an immediate 
fulfillment of Scripture, an immediate prophecy, and an ultimate prophecy. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see this with the Davidic covenant. Whenever God promises David that he will have a son, and his son will reign on the throne of David, and his someone will reign on the throne of David for all of eternity. If you go back to to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic prophecy and the, the Davidic covenant, the, the, the scripture tells us that, that David will have a son and the son will build him a temple, a house. Well, that's clearly referencing Solomon. And then in that same prophecy, in that same covenant, the scripture tells us that and, and, and the descendant of David will reign on the throne for all of eternity. Well, clearly that's not referencing Solomon, but that's referencing Christ. And so we have both an immediate prophecy and an ultimate prophecy or a futuristic prophecy. And that's exactly what we see here in this text. The the text tells us that Jesus answered and said to them in verse 4, Don't be misleading. Many will come in my name, verse 5, and will say I am the Christ. In verse 6 it says you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. In verse 7 it says nation will rise against nation. In verse 8 it says but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. I want us to understand, church, That Jesus is referencing both the destruction of the temple that is coming in 70 AD and the end of the age. That he is referencing both the immediate future and the ultimate future. But I want us to hear what Jesus is not saying. I want us to hear what Jesus is not saying. And I want us to read this very critically. Look at verse 5. Verse 4, it says, see to it that no one misleads you. So that tells us that there are going to be some who come and try to mislead us. Verse 5 says, they will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Verse 6, and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars and see to it that you are not frightened for these things must, must take place, but that is not the end. When you have a pastor or a teacher or a preacher or, a preacher or a prophet or an evangelist that stands up and begins to give you quotations and begins to give you statistics on how there are more wars today than there were back then and there are more more destruction now than there was back then. There's more famine now than there was back then. There's more earthquakes now than there was back then. There's more natural disasters and hurricanes and volcanoes and we're getting closer and closer to the end. That is false teaching. Look at what the text says. Be the... Christians, be the Berean Christians, those who receive the word of God with gladness, and then test the word to see that it be so. Look at what the text says in verse 6. It says, but that is not yet the end. If you keep reading, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning. If you keep reading, it says, they will deliver you into tribulation, they will kill you. You will be hated for my name's sake, and and on account of my name, verse 10, and At that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because of lawlessness, verse 12, because of lawlessness has increased, most people, their love will grow cold. Jesus is not saying these are the signs of the end times. Jesus is saying these are not the signs of the end times. He says this is business as usual. There will always be wars. There will always be rumors of wars. There will always be earthquakes. There will always be famines. There will always be floods. There will always be hurricanes. There will always be tsunamis. That is not a sign of the end time. Jesus said so. He said these are merely the beginnings. These are merely the birth pains. 
And so let us interpret scripture as to what it is. Because later on in this text, Jesus is going to tell us, if anybody tries to, to put a calendar or put a date on this, then they miss the whole purpose of the text. They miss the whole purpose of the prophecy. It is not for us to figure out. It is not for us to try and put a calendar and us to try and figure out when Jesus is going to return. The disciples didn't even think Jesus was going anywhere. But Jesus is going to tell them, well, this is when I'm coming back and this is how you'll know. They didn't even know Jesus was going to die. He had told them over and over and over again, but they didn't believe. That's why when the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out the sword. After Jesus made, just, 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 just picture in your mind's eye, we're, 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 we're cheating, we're, we're skipping ahead. Picture in your mind's eye, a, a legion, a thousand Roman soldiers come to arrest one guy with, with a bunch of fishermen. They show up to arrest Jesus. They said, we're, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus stands up and says, I am, and a thousand Roman soldiers fall down. Peter says, this is it. This is the time. Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman government. Just with one statement, he's just knocked down a thousand of them. This is it. This is our time. We are going to usher in the kingdom. Peter and the rest of the disciples saw Jesus as a political and military messiah. They didn't understand that he was going to be crucified. Didn't understand that he was going to die. Didn't understand that he was going to have to be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven and come back to receive his people. They didn't understand that. And Jesus is giving them this teaching. Jesus is not saying, these are the signs of the second coming. Jesus is saying, you will hear all of this. There will be many who come to mislead you. And this is not the signs of my return. But this is merely the beginning. This is merely the beginning. So church, be very careful when you hear anyone that puts a date on a calendar, that tells you this because, of, because I've, I've, I've looked at Daniel and Revelation and Ezekiel and the prophets and I've looked at all of this and, and this is when Jesus is going to come back. And as soon as this political event takes place, this is when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to say later on Matthew chapter 24, that it is not for man to figure out. Be careful, church. And I want us to hear what Jesus says at the end, verse 14. The end of all this, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. Jesus gives us the marker of the end. He gives us when Christ will return. He gives us the very essential components of the second coming of Christ. And we miss it because we get bogged down in wars and rumors of wars and, and earthquakes and famine and, and all of this. Jesus said the end will come when the gospel is preached to all nations. That's the marker, church. And so our heart and our, our urgency ought not to be on figuring out when Jesus comes, 
but telling people that Jesus is going to come. That he has come and that he's coming again. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, you want to know when the end is? Verse 14. And the gospel of this kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations. And nations there is language groups. Every ethnos is the word. And then the end shall come. There are thousands, thousands, people groups who've never even heard about Jesus. And we are so focused on the second coming when there are so many that have never heard of the first coming. You want to see Jesus come back? We need to get serious about evangelism. We need to get serious about reaching the world with the gospel. We need to get serious about, about telling people about Jesus. That was, that's what Jesus was emphasizing. He poured his life into 12 men. He was with them every moment that he could possibly be. And moments before he's about to leave them, he tells them this. He says, tell the whole world about the kingdom. Share the good news of the kingdom. His great commission, Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Acts chapter 1 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The emphasis of Jesus' teaching is not on famines. It's not on earthquakes. It's not on wars and rumors of war. It's not on figuring out when Jesus is going to come. But it's about telling people about Jesus. And if we would spend half as much time telling people about Jesus as we did about worrying about the end of the age, then the, the kingdom of God would be ushered in. Church, let us let us expect Jesus to come, but we can't expect Jesus to come if we don't tell people about Him. We think that just miraculously one day Jesus is going to come back. Unless the church does its job of reaching the nations, Jesus will not come back. But I believe this. I believe that in the sovereignty of God, the church will do its job. Why? Because the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and is filled with the Spirit of God. And beside of all, in, in spite of all of its warts and all of its failures, the church is the bride of Christ, and God intends to empower and fulfill the church to tell the world about Jesus. And that moment, that the gospel message is preached to that last people group and that last language and that last convert, that last child of God comes to faith. At that moment, the Lord of glory is going to return. And He's going to return for all those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. We, as a church, have a job. And that job is urgent. 
tell people about Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that that you have promised to return. That when you died upon the cross, that was not the end. We thank you that you promised to come again. God, as we have heard your word, heard your good news, heard your gospel, Lord, may we take that gospel to the ends of the earth. May we be compelled to share with our neighbor, our coworker, our loved ones the good news of the gospel. Lord, may you work in our hearts. And give us an urgency, give us a burden for those who don't know Jesus. If there's someone here this morning who does not know Jesus, I want to invite you to come. Come and find grace and find mercy. Maybe God is calling you to be a part of what we're doing right here at Redeemer. If that's you, may you come. As we go to this time of invitation, maybe the Lord is convicting you. Maybe the Lord is convicting you that you've not shared with those who need to know Christ. Maybe the Lord is convicting you because you have misplaced priorities. Maybe you have been worshiping an idol without even realizing it. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, may you find yourself obedient. God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to move amongst us this morning. In Jesus' name.